Hey there. If you have a Bible, uh, turn to Mark chapter 8. We're going to go over all of Mark chapter 8 in the first verse of Mark chapter 9 today, but we didn't have room to print it all in the bulletin. So you can follow along in your Bible or we'll have it on the screen behind me here. Um, As always, I'm honored to be here to be able to worship with you all this morning and incredibly honored to be able to look at God's word with you. Uh, I'll pray and we'll get rolling. Holy God, we need you this morning. We all bring different joys and sorrows and triumphs and burdens in this morning and you know them all. And you know exactly what we need. And I pray that through your word, through your Holy Spirit, you administer to each one of us this morning. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in college, there was uh, a class that I always had to go to that uh, there wasn't a parking lot close to it, or at least not one with ample parking. So I'd usually have to park on a street and walk up to half a mile to class. So I'd have to allot, you know, an extra 20 minutes or so. But on the day of my final, I was cramming and I didn't leave myself very much room. And so I was driving in the car and I went to the one small parking lot that I could never find a spot at. And as I pulled in, I was praying, Lord, please let me find a spot. Please let me find a spot. Because I knew if I didn't find a spot, I was going to have to go back to the road and walk a long way, and I was going to be late for my exam. So I pulled down the first row, faked out by a short car, no spots. Lord, please let me find a spot. Please let me find a spot. There's five rows. I got to the last row, and I literally out loud, I said, Lord, please let me find a spot. Please let, oh, never mind. I found one. And I literally said that out loud to God. And it didn't occur to me until much later how ridiculous it was because God had given me exactly the thing that I was asking for, but it wasn't accompanied by fireworks or a loud booming voice from the clouds or anything like that. And so I missed it. And God's always at work around all of us, but we miss it. And in the gospel of Mark, Jesus' own disciples miss it again and again and again. But this morning in the passage that we're reading, they start to see things a bit more clearly. And this is going to be the last Mark sermon for a while because we're going to be breaking for Advent starting next week. But this is an appropriate place to pause Mark because we're about halfway through the book. There's 16 chapters in Mark and we're going to go through chapter eight today. But it's also appropriate because in the narrative of Mark, this is the center point and this is the turning point in the story. For the first half of Mark, Mark, the gospel writer, is basically asking, who is Jesus? And today, the passage that we're looking at, we're finally going to have someone who comes out and says who Jesus is. And then Jesus is going to tell us very bluntly what his identity means for him and for us. So let's get going, shall we? This is Mark chapter 8, verse 1. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, 
I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they'll faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in the desolate, in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd and they had a few small fish and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full, and there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away, and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. So if you were here two weeks ago, you heard Joe preach from Mark 6 when Jesus fed 5,000. Um, and in fact, you might be thinking, didn't we just hear this story? It's a short book, Mark is, and it's kind of odd that of all the things he didn't include, even things that are in the other gospels, that he would, he would choose to include this story because Jesus uses more resources to feed fewer people and there's less left over. So in some ways, it seems like a less impressive story, but Mark included this story for a purpose. There are several differences between this miracle feeding and the feeding of the 5,000, but the most significant is that when Jesus fed the 5,000, his audience consisted mostly of Jews. But here, when he's feeding the 4,000, his audience is mostly Gentiles because Jesus isn't back home on his side of the sea. He's in the Decapolis, which is not Jewish territory. So um, we've got a map of the region of Galilee. And uh, I hope you're starting to feel a little bit familiar with it. But if you see on the west there, there's Galilee. And it's a little more flesh tone, I guess. Um, that's where uh, Jesus is from. Capernaum is kind of his home base. But on the, on the eastern side of the sea... It, Decapolis is down at the bottom there, but it's actually more than that. That's where he's at right now. He's on the eastern side of the sea, and that's the Gal—I mean, the Gentile side of the sea. So you'll see at this point in Jesus' ministry, he just keeps pinging back and forth from the western Jewish side to the eastern Gentile side. And I don't know if you remember, but back when Jesus first went to the Decapolis um, it was his first time going to Gentile territory at all. And he had just calmed the sea with two words. And then when he got to the other side of the sea, to the Decapolis, Jesus cast a legion of demons out of one man. And after he did this, he told that man, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. So that was the first time Jesus had gone to the Gentiles. And now just a short time later, Jesus returns to the Decapolis and he has crowds everywhere he goes, Gentile crowds. So it's significant that this miracle happens among the Gentiles. And I think it's also especially significant that in chapter seven, right before this, Jesus declared that all foods were clean. And now he's going to the Gentiles who the Jews saw as unclean and he's ministering to them. And here's what that has to do with us. First of all, 
Jesus was reaching out to all the lost, not just his own people, not just the Jews. Um, I would guess that probably 99% of us here are not of Jewish heritage. And this week, uh, we're all, you know, like fighting people at Publix to get our ingredients for what we need for Thanksgiving, or we're, you know, packing for a trip or whatever, and we're preparing for Thanksgiving. And it's appropriate this week, hopefully all weeks, but this week to have a heart of thankfulness and hopefully not just a general thankfulness, but a thankfulness to God for our families and for our homes and for our country. Um, But I hope that we never stop thanking God that he's not a tribal God that's partial to one ethnicity. Because of Christ, we're all welcome into the family of God and there's always room at his table. That's something to be thankful for. And this should also sting a little bit as we think about the type of people that we're inclined to reach out to and invite to our table because Jesus extends the gospel outside of his tribe in his neck of the woods. And he goes to people who are ethnically and culturally and spiritually very different from him. And if you remember the reception that the Gerasenes gave Jesus after he cast the demons out of this man and into a bunch of pigs, they didn't like him. They wanted him to leave, but he keeps returning to them. And in verse two of the passage we're looking at today, it even says he had compassion for them. So Jesus taught them. He taught them spiritual truths, but he also ministered to them through meeting their physical needs. He fed them. In verse three, it says, if I send them away hungry to their homes, they'll faint on the way. And I don't think that Jesus' purpose was to wow them with a miracle. He was genuinely concerned for their needs. And no one had to petition Jesus and point this out. No one asked. Jesus knew their needs. When Jesus was teaching his disciples how to pray, he said, your father knows what you need before you ask him. Jesus knows your need and he cares. And whatever your need is, if it's time, if it's rest, if it's a job, if it's a friend, he knows what you need and he cares. But more than that, he has power to do something about it. In the feeding of the 5,000, a young boy contributed the little food that he had, and Jesus multiplied it to provide for everyone. And in the same way, here the disciples throw in the little that they have, and Jesus makes it work. And that's all that we ever do. We give the little bit of time or the little bit of gifting that we have, and God blows it up, and he does something special with it that we couldn't do on our own. And God supply never run short. You've probably seen in the bulletin, if you're one of the five people that read the bulletin, that the finance committee has been subtly telling us for a while that things are tight financially. And frankly, the the giving isn't matching our budget. And none of us want to be the church that asks for money. And so we probably err on the other side and, and don't say much at all. But the truth is, There are things that we want to do as a church, things that are on our heart, ministries to pour into that we just can't do right now because of limited resources. And so I'm just asking you, consider giving. And I know many of you give faithfully, and we're so grateful for that. Um, 
But I also know that some of you maybe feel like your gift wouldn't do much because you think there's some rich guy here who can write a check and make this all even out at the end of the year. But I want you to think when, when the disciples came to Jesus and said, we just have seven loaves of bread. He wasn't like, guys, come on. I mean, I'm God, but give me something to work with here. We got 4,000 people. He, he's like, what do you have? They say seven loaves. He's like, okay, tell them to sit down. Let's do this. Think about it. If everyone had just brought enough food for three days, but one guy forgot to bring his lunch and everybody pitched in, it wouldn't be a very good story. We wouldn't be talking about it this morning. It's a good story because we hardly have anything at all. And Jesus takes the little that we have and he turns it into something awesome. When I was little, I liked uh, helping my mom bake. Uh, And I I say help in air quotes because I really don't think I was much help. But when I was like four or five, she would pull a chair up next to the counter and she would let me like mix the ingredients. And I did a horrible job. So she would end up having to actually mix them. And then she'd give me a spoon and she would have a spoon and we would spoon out the cookie dough and roll it and put it on sheets. But the truth is my mom rolled 95% of those and I just basically licked cookie dough off of my spoon. (laughs) But then when the cookies were done, mom would put them on a plate and I would go bring them to dad and I'd say, look, dad, I made cookies. And my mom could have said, you didn't make cookies. You were licking the spoon. I made those cookies, but she didn't. She would say, yeah, look, Mark made cookies. And that's, that's how God works through us. He, he takes the little bit of time or the little bit of gifting or the little bit of resources that we have and he multiplies it and he blows it up into something way better. So through the little that the disciples had, God fed 4,000 people and then he sends them home and sails back to his side of the lake, to the, to the region of Galilee. And then here come the party poopers, the Pharisees. Read in verse 11 with me. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again and went to the other side. So let's get this straight. The Pharisees We're arguing with Jesus and asking Jesus for a sign from heaven. He just literally fed 4,000 people with seven breadsticks. (laughs) Jesus has healed a leper, given sight to the blind, cast a multitude of demons out of a man, and raised a young girl from the dead. What more do you want? Party poopers, what are you waiting for? But Jesus says no sign will be given to this generation because the fact is he'd been giving signs all along. They just weren't willing to see them. And I think this is the message to the Pharisees and to the skeptics and the haters. If you can't see God in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, then no evidence is going to convince you. If you can't see God 
in the love of Jesus Christ, then I don't know what will convince you. And I want you to notice Jesus has sailed back to his side of the sea, to the Jewish side. And literally as soon as he gets there, the Pharisees show up and they're arguing with him. And then verse 13 says, and he left them, got into the boat again and went to the other side. And I almost think Mark is including this to be funny because it's like he gets off the boat and then here are the Pharisees and he's like, I'm going back to the dirty Gentiles. (laughs) So now verses 14 through 21, they're selling back to the Gentiles. And it says, now they had forgotten to bring bread. And this is talking about the disciples. And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? So again, I want to remind you, this is the same day. Jesus had just literally fed 4,000 people with seven loaves of bread. And here the disciples are with one loaf of bread for 12 of them. And they're afraid they're going to go hungry. And Mark consistently portrays the disciples as kind of dense and slow to grasp who Jesus is. And I can relate to them because I do this stuff all the time. But Jesus says, watch out, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And he's not talking about bread. He's talking about hard heartedness and unbelief, the same hard heartedness that the Pharisees had just shown. Leaven or yeast works through dough. And Jesus warns them that it could spread even to them and it could spread even to you and me. And it typically doesn't uh, work out where uh, something just happens and, you know, like in the blink of an eye, we renounce our faith in Christ. It's usually more subtle than that. We think like Jesus is my king and my savior and all that stuff, but I'm hungry. In the feeding of the 4,000, Jesus showed that he knows our physical needs and he cares, but we often separate our lives into sacred and secular because praying and church and stuff like that, that's good spiritual stuff, but eating, paying bills, meeting deadlines, passing exams, that's on me. But Jesus never makes that distinction. Earlier, I told you about the time I was in college and I was frenzied because I was trying to find a place to park so that I could get to my exam on time. And the funny thing is, I don't remember what class it was. I don't remember if it was spring or fall. All I know is that God provided and I passed the exam and I passed the class and I got my degree. And the fact is, since then, I've gotten two master's degrees. And I'm not saying that because I'm a whiz kid. I'm saying that like miracle of miracles. I got two master's degrees. But God provided the time and the money and the way for me to do those things. But you know what this week has been for me? It's been back to that frenzied state. See, uh, 
the morning that I was taking that exam back in college, I was running flashcards and reciting facts out loud, and that was the most important thing in the world to me that morning, even though I can't even remember what class it was for now. This week, I've been running flashcards and reciting facts out loud because I'm studying to take ordination exams. And I've needed this passage this week to show me my own silly heart because I'm so slow to see Jesus at work around me. And I'm so quick to forget it when I see it. And we all need reminders of how big Jesus is and what he's literally already done. We all need reminders. So Jesus reminds his disciples. He says, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? Seven. Do you not yet understand? See, now they do understand, but they just needed a reminder. We all do. Every one of us are sitting here because we haven't starved. We haven't died, you know? We have a provider and a sustainer, and it doesn't always look the way that we want it to, but we're here. God's been faithful. He already knows what you need. He cares, and he's king. So now they're going to get to the other side, back to the Gentile territory. And we'll look at the map again, just so you can visualize it. So they're going to a town now called Bethsaida. So you can see it's on the northeastern side of the Sea of Galilee there. So we'll continue reading in verse 22. It says, And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. So, When this happens, Jesus may have been preaching. He may have been headed somewhere. We don't know. But I think it tells us something about the nature of Christ, the nature of God, because Jesus stops everything that he's doing to attend to this blind man. Because this isn't just some, boom, you're healed. He says that he took him by the hand and led him out of the village. And that could have been a three-minute walk, but it could have been a 45-minute walk. We just don't know. But God's heart for the broken and for the disenfranchised shines in this passage. And he leads him out of the village and we get these weird details. First, Jesus spat on his eyes. That's weird. Um, One of your beloved elders, Mike Ebert, suggested, you know where this is going, Mike, he suggested, he, he's in a community group with us, and we were discussing this passage last week, and he said, do you have a sermon title yet? And I said, no, and he's like, I've got one. I was like, okay, let's have it, Mike. Holy spit, Batman. <laughs> and I seriously considered doing that, but I'm not ordained yet, so I decided not to. But it's like, there must have been something holy about his spit, right? 
Because if I spit in somebody's eyes, it doesn't do anything. I think what Jesus was doing is he was taking something that in every culture would have been considered dirty and gross and unclean to bring healing. Because this was a Gentile man, which made him unclean, and he was blind, which many of the Jews would have attributed to some sin of his or sin of his parents. But he's using this dirty symbol spit to bring healing. But then it's weird because he touches his eyes and and spits and, and it doesn't work the first time. He sees people, but they look like trees walking. And so Jesus has to touch his eyes a second time. And you have to wonder, what's up with this? Was Jesus not powerful enough? Was this case of blindness like the worst case Jesus had ever come across? We're going to come back to that. But regardless of why it took two tries, the blind man's sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And then Jesus tells the man not to enter back into the village but to go straight home, which is strange. Why would he tell him not to go to the village, but to go straight home? And this isn't the first time in Mark that we've seen Jesus heal someone and then say, basically, don't tell anybody. In fact, in the very first chapter of Mark, when he healed the leper, he said, see that you say nothing to anyone. And you gotta think, the Jewish Jewish authorities by this point don't like Jesus And the more of a scene that Jesus causes, the harder they try to get him. And so to understand what's going on here, I think it's going to be helpful if we all think about Batman. I think it's almost always helpful if we all think about Batman, if I'm honest. But so Batman swoops in, saves the day, and then he's gone. And why? And there are a few reasons. Batman is a vigilante, and if he sticks around, the authorities are going to come get him, and they're going to lock him up, and he's not going to be able to help anyone anymore. He doesn't want his true identity to be revealed, so he doesn't hang around taking selfies and signing autographs. He gets out of there. He doesn't want the press showing up because he doesn't want them trying to catch him in action. That's not his mission. It actually disrupts his mission. The point isn't to be a spectacle or to overthrow the authorities. The point is to help people. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing. He's kind of like a vigilante. And if he has crowds, it makes it harder for him to do his work, which is his father's work. And it says in Mark 1:45, Jesus could no longer openly enter a town because crowds were gathering. But that was on the Jewish side. But now here in Mark 8, on the Gentile side, We see he can't go anywhere there without having a crowd either. From here, Jesus and the disciples head north to a town called Caesarea Philippi. So one more time, we'll look at the map. You should all have this burned into your brains by now. So look way up north there, Caesarea Philippi. Jesus is branching out. He's never gone this far north. And so this conversation that he has with his disciples when he's on the way there I think it's almost like he needed to make sure they had some things straight. Because the next four verses that we're going to read are the center point and the turning point of the story in the Gospel of Mark. So read with me, starting in verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciple, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? 
Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So there's been so much speculation about who Jesus is up to this point, even amongst the disciples themselves. If you remember, after Jesus calmed the storm, they asked each other, who then is this? It was like, it was like they could see, but they couldn't see him clearly. It's like they were seeing Jesus, but he was like a tree walking. But now Peter says definitively, you are the Christ. And by saying this, he's saying, you are God's anointed. You are the Messiah that our hearts long for. You, Jesus, are king. At the beginning of the chapter, the disciples are grumbling about not having enough bread and they're missing who Jesus is. But now we have Peter's confession. He saw Jesus clearly. And this is the key to Jesus healing the blind man in two stages. The blind man was touched by Jesus, but he didn't see clearly at first. It took time. It took witnessing even more of Jesus' power. And in the same way, the disciples didn't see Jesus clearly at first, but they do now. And after Peter's confession, Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. We see that again because Jesus' hour had not yet come, but it was getting close. Now that they realize Jesus is the king, he's going to tell them the kind of king that he is. Read with me in verse 31. And he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Jesus is not the kind of king that the disciples expected. And honestly, he's not the kind of king that they wanted because he's not here to overthrow the authorities He's going to submit himself to the authorities and be killed by them. So it's almost like the coach gathers the team and says, here's the game plan. We're going to let them win. It's not what they want to hear. And so it says, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So almost as soon as Peter sees clearly who Jesus is, he confuses the Messiah's agenda for his own. Because Jesus wasn't establishing a kingdom so that he could avenge the Jews or give honor and privilege to his friends. The king came to serve and to sacrifice, and to give his life for many. And if we want to be a part of his kingdom, he calls us to do the same thing. So let's read the last part of our passage now, starting in verse 34, and we'll go up through the first verse of chapter 9. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is a king telling his subjects this as they go into battle. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross 
and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there's some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This last verse is often used by skeptics, by critics of Christianity and scripture to discredit Jesus because it sounds like Jesus thought that the world was going to come to an end before some of his audience there had passed away, which of course didn't happen. But the skeptics who use this verse to attack the gospel are hard-hearted and blind like the Pharisees who asked Jesus for a sign because they missed the point. When the kingdom of God came in power, it didn't look like what anyone expected. It didn't look like an apocalypse. It didn't look like a victory march through the streets. When the kingdom of God came in power, it looked like a beaten and bloodied Galilean murdered on a cross. It looked like an empty tomb. That's how the kingdom of God came with power. And I ask you, do you have eyes to see it? If you do, then follow the king where he leads. Deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow Jesus Christ. And what does it mean for you to do that? What does it mean even this week for you to deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow Jesus Christ? His kingdom hasn't fully come, but when it does, he's going to wipe every tear from our eyes and there will be no more sin and death. If you don't know the king, I want you to know him. I really want you to know him because he is a good king. He knows you. He knows what you need and he cares. And he's an all-powerful king who can do something about it. But Jesus asked every one of us this morning a question that demands a response. It's the same question he asked his disciples. Who do you say that I am? And my prayer is that each one of us can say, Jesus, you are the Christ. You are king. Let's pray. Holy God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the beautiful way that your story unfolds in the gospel of Mark. Thank you for how you revealed Jesus Christ to be your son and the chosen Messiah. And just as Mark uses literary techniques to reveal Jesus' true identity, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would reveal to us this morning. Some of us see, but we don't see clearly. And some of us have seen clearly, but we've already forgotten. 
Lord, help us to cast our worries on you this morning. Help me to cast my worries on you. And remember who is king. Help us to remember that he knows us, he knows what we need, and he loves us and he's for us. We pray all these things in the holy name of Jesus Christ. Amen.